So let me paint a scenario for you. I think for some people, this would be the worst case scenario. What if we found information that showed us that the last four months were mostly completely unnecessary? If that information was real, do you think everybody would want you to know it? So again, the CDC released some interesting information today. I suggest you look at it. Because if it is all, not a lie, but used for certain purposes that are not your benefit nor mine, how are you going to feel? Imagine being a church that shut down. And then imagine what Isaiah 28 is going to say. I was so thankful when I discovered this chapter this, this week before COVID information. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I was so thankful when I found these two chapters because they're so inspiring to those of us who know there is no pact you can make to avoid death. And if God wants to send a pandemic to get you, he's gonna. It doesn't say be risky. That doesn't say be foolish. It doesn't say ignore science. It just says that maybe, maybe, no matter what the truth is, we've handled this whole thing fairly poorly because we're all a little too afraid to die. We're all a little too unaware of how often people die on the planet. And we're all a little too unprepared for what life looks like when people die. As a pastor, I've seen this close up. When people die, families are unprepared. And frankly, as Christians, you have no excuse for that. It's all in the Bible. You know it's coming. Why is it surprising? Now, again, I'm just going to let Isaiah tell it to all of us today. Because there's some real comfort here in this. But first, let me give you, let me give you the overview of this section of Isaiah. Uh, and we're in here because, again, our Old Testament readings, Isaiah 29, 17 through the end of the chapter. But that's like the back end of the first half of a book, of a book that's five chapters long in Isaiah. It's called the Book of Woes, which I just, I adore this. I totally want to publish the five chapters of Isaiah, 28 to 33, as a book called the Book of Woes, so I can have it on my library bookshelf. So that someday someone could go along my library bookshelf and find the Book of Woes. <laughs> and just imagine what they must think. Like, do you take that off? If you were at the public library and you found the book of woes, would you pick it up? But it's so glorious, this book of woes in Isaiah. Again, 28 through 33. We're going to go through 28 and 29 together in detail. But let me give you the history and the big picture too. Okay. Now, you might remember from last year, we talked about this guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a king of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom that comes out of the split between what once upon a time was the Israel of David and Solomon. But now it's two countries and they've not been friends for a long time. In fact, in the lifetime of Ahaz, Hezekiah's forebear, Israel in the north, sometimes called Samaria now, sometimes called Ephraim now, they formed a pact with Damascus to destroy Judah and take it over, reunite the tribes as it were, but by the sword. And you might remember that in response to that, King Ahaz, who's a bit of a wicked man, appeals to another power even further up the chain called Assyria or Ashuria, depending on how your translation is. And Isaiah meets Ahaz 
right around Christmas time everywhere, every year in our lectionary series, he meets Ahaz by a road and says to him, if you had not asked for help from Assyria, you would have been fine. But because you asked and didn't trust your God, now Assyria is going to come upon you too. And he asks for a sign, give me a sign. And Ahaz says, I won't give you a sign. And behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's Christmas time. That's already happened. Now his son is king, and Assyria has not come and done this yet. But they're doing it to northern Israel and hard. Northern Israel is going to collapse, be destroyed, and be dispersed to the nations. What would you do as a young king, seeing your former enemy being beaten up by someone who should have helped you a while ago but kind of didn't, and if he's in charge of you directly, he's going to definitely take a lot more of your money. You're losing your bubble state. What do you do? You know, there's nothing between you and your enemy. What do you do? There's a pandemic raging through the land. What do you do? Who do you trust? And Hezekiah, faithful king, does a stupid thing. He trusts a power called Egypt. And he reaches out to form an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. And as a result of that, and in the context of that, chapters 28 through 33 of the book are preached at a high festival a high festival, potentially Passover, to the entire assembly, including King Hezekiah and all the professional prophets and all the priests. Isaiah says these five chapters. And in short, he says to you, you're wrong, just like Ahaz was. And so you're going to go lean on Egypt, and Egypt is going to snap underneath you. And the result of this is that the destruction that's being brought upon northern Israel will be brought upon you as well, all the way up to the very gates of the city of Jerusalem. And there... Because I have bigger plans than just you guys. I'm going to stop it right there. I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to save you from it and bring you back where you were. But you're all going to go through it. So get ready. It's kind of like Jesus rising from the dead and saying, I saved you. It's totally never going to hurt you. But you're still going to die from a worldwide pandemic. It's going to be really painful. And you're all going to go down in a plague. But you'll rise from the dead. See how it's not really any different. And it's not really about what you do. It's about who you trust. You can make the same decisions in trust and in fear. And let me submit, the majority of us have had a little too much fear recently. Now, before we dig into what Isaiah says about this and lead into where the good news of God's salvation does come out of these texts into our text from Mark today, Mark 7 and Romans 10, let me give you kind of just a bird's eye view main points I don't want you to miss from this. What is clear in the book of woes is that God never lets the evil in this world get away from him. Like it's never outside of his control to the level that all the evil that you know, whenever you know it, wherever you see it, you can still say, God will use that for good. You know this. It's a confident promise in Jesus' resurrection. All evil will work for good. Romans 8, look it up. You know this. That whenever you set up a place of false glory, you're going to put up something, you're going to say, that's the God that shall save us. God's going to destroy it. So if you really like things to work nicely because we invent them, don't worship them. (laughs) If you do, it's only a matter of a couple generations until God's going to take it away. 
because he won't let us fall. He tears down the false glory and puts his glory right in front. Do you know, I, I honestly can't tell you on that side of town, those giant boxes that once held so many, I can't tell you how many are there right now. But I can tell you that when the false glory gets exposed for the fearful teaching that it is, and has nothing else to give you as it crumbles, oh, please worship online. Oh, please watch our TV show. Please send us money and keep us open. Please be Christians. You're already lost when you're begging the pagans to believe. We know this. So that's two, right? Glory that's false gets torn down by God. And if you're going to stand there in the way, by the way, like this is the point of the text. Jerusalem is going to get destroyed. Don't stand in front of the gates. <laughs> Don't try to stop it, right? Uh, so third, and this one is worth pondering. Isaiah is going to go into depth on drunkenness. He's going to call drunkenness a real problem. Now, I want you to listen carefully to how he talks about it because there is no mm, food, drink, thing like that that is of itself evil. If it were, we couldn't have wine in the Lord's Supper. Drunkenness is not about having some chemical that changes the way you feel for a moment. Otherwise, coffee would be drunkenness. Drunkenness is the loss of control through an apathetic dismissal of your responsibilities. And clearly, if you're drinking alcohol so you cannot stand, you've achieved that, right? You've gotten to that point. Huh? But you can be drunk without alcohol. Now, I'm not saying go ahead and get plastered. No, that would be also wrong, right? But it's quite possible to be in this state of drunkenness. Drunkenness is therefore apathy. Apathy. Huh? That I don't care. And that that's a neglect of duty. And that our God doesn't believe in that kind of life. And finally, the guiding hand of God always leads us to good news. All right, good news. Let's go find some in Isaiah 28. He begins with a section in which he calls down the wrath of Assyria upon Ephraim. Why Ephraim? Ephraim is the family from whom all the kings of northern Israel have come. Remember, who's Ephraim the son of? Joseph. So if you had to be like the picking person in the book of Genesis, who should the Christ come from? I mean, you look at all the stories, who gets the big show at the end? It's Joseph. Right? So Ephraim always kind of has a chip on his shoulder about not being Judah all the way through. And now here he is trying to destroy Judah, getting destroyed by God instead by the hand of Assyria. And this is what is said to him. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. Right? So he connects pride and drunkenness there. Those whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. We're at 28 verse 1 still. Which is the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Right, so again, I'm coming upon you, northern Israel. You're all not even paying attention. And the things you think are glorious are dust in the wind. Now, it might be interesting to know that at this point in Israel's history, before they get hit by Assyria, they're the strongest they've been in a long time. They got money. They got military power. They're feeling pretty good about themselves. All of it, dust in the wind. Like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, verse 2. Like a flood of mighty waters, who will bring them down to the earth with his own hand? God will. The crown of pride, verse 3. The drunkards of Ephraim, they will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it's still in his hand. So even the fruit that Ephraim might propose to have, the whatever military might or money that they have, 
That's like something that a passerby on a walk would grab off the tree because he's hungry and he'd snatch it up and eat it and it would be gone. That's what God calls all of their glory. Now, again, let me take this just a step back and put it in some context. How does it feel to be an American these days? How's our glory doing? I actually think it's not so bad, honestly. I see a lot of flags flying around. There's some people who hate the flag. There's some people who like the flag. So our glory is not so bad, but that's kind of the thing too, isn't it? How much do we Christians trust America? How much should we? Is it a Christian nation? Oh, by no means. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, it's not even close to a Christian nation. We're an empire running a global hegemony of like multiple tech and oil conglomerates through various banks. We don't even know who's in charge of it all. Uh, we have some people who say this and that, but we put so much trust in this. If you saved for retirement, it's because you believe the government was going to take care of this country. Right? You put that much trust in it. So how does it feel when that government starts to look fragile like it has recently? As much as we have a lot of Americana going on. It makes you scared, right? It teaches you to ask, who do you trust? Who is my God? What, what would I do if America collapsed? How would I be a Christian right here in Illinois and not be afraid of it because I know who my God is? That's the kind of thing he's challenging them to think about. So he says they're going to get snatched up in their own way. In that day, the Lord of hosts, this is verse 5, will be a crown of glory, a diadem to his people, the remnant of his people. So the destruction of northern Israel is for the sake of Jesus. We'll just leave that at verse 5 and 6. So that the, the bringing about of salvation can come to the earth. But, verse 7, they have also erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. Did I tell you they talk about drunkenness a lot, right? Um, they err in vision. This is the important part right there. They stumble in judgments. Their tables are full of vomit and filth. Nowhere is clean. Now, Kenosha, Wisconsin right now, nowhere is clean, right? Portland downtown, nowhere is clean. But was it clean before? What's your definition of clean? What does it mean to have a table full of filth? Right here it means they're at a rich table, lots of good food, all the wine they can want, and God says that's vomit. You're eating vomit. Not because the steaks are vomit. Or it is actually once it goes into your stomach and gets digested and comes back out, it would be vomit. right? It is the same thing. It's dust in the wind. God says, why do you trust it? Why do you think it's his proof to you of who he is even? When he's risen from the dead, washed you and filled you with a spirit that knows that to be true, which is a far greater thing than these. So again, he's done with Assyria. But now, okay, here's why this is so important for us today. It's going to start to lead into what his 29 and then our texts. Isaiah, in this next section, 9 and 10, he is mocking those who are about to accuse him of being a conspiracy theorist before they do it. And again, I can't, I can't but laugh at the irony of this. Because if I were to come out today and tell you that in fact COVID is a myth, which I don't think it is at all, actually, not even close. But if I were to say that, what would you call it, right? A conspiracy theory? Right? Uh, that's what's said of anybody we disagree with these days on any side. There's an all far right-wing conspiracy and there's a, there's a far left-wing conspiracy and there's conspiracies everywhere. It's the easiest way to dismiss people because you don't have to actually deal with the issue. And so Isaiah hits them off ahead of the pass and, and, and mocks them. So the next words are what they're saying to him, but he's saying it. So he's like, who is this guy 
that's going to teach knowledge to us? Who does he think he is to make us understand the message? What, what? Does he think we're just babies, that we just barely know anything? Listen to him as he stacks up word upon word and line upon line. Oh my goodness, will he shut up? That's nine and 10. And then 11 is so huge because it's, it's the prophecy by which tongues takes place in the New Testament. We're not going to chase that today, but it's huge. It says, we're stammering lips and another tongue. He will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest and so on. Um, but the word of the Lord is to them, verse 13, precept upon precept. So that section says this. Since you think that me telling you that resting on Egypt isn't sufficient, and if you just trust God, he'll take care of it, is just line upon line and precept upon precept. Well, therefore then, when God tells you the rest of it, he's going to tell it in a language that you will be unable to hear. In fact, he's going to make it so that a sleep will pass over you, and you won't even know what you're doing until you lead yourself to destruction. That's, that's his response to that, right? Like, here it is. You don't want it? Well, fine. Then go off where you're going to go. So hear the word of the Lord to you scornful men who rule over Jerusalem. Because you've said, we made a covenant with death. With Sheol, we have an agreement. Well, therefore, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will come upon you. They think it won't come upon them. So this scourge of death or this pact of death, what is that? Well, for them, it's Egypt. There's a big country. It could attack us. We could all die. We don't want to die. We'll stop death. We'll make a pact with death by getting Egypt to stop death for us. Here we go. Pact with death. No one can touch us. Now, forgive me if I don't at least allude to the fact that a, a global shutdown to stop a pandemic is a pact with death to stop the death. And I'm not so sure that we're told in the Bible we shouldn't do that at all. In fact, I'd say, no, we're probably supposed to stop death if we can. That's never the issue here. That might be the issue for those who can't listen. But the issue is not whether or not you try to avoid death. It's why and how hard. And for what reasons? And do you think you really can? And do you pat yourself on the back and dismiss the word of God then as a result? So they say, Assyria can't get us because we have Egypt. And I tell you, Christian church, wherever you are, if you think you can survive American civilization walking their path and things like COVID can't knock you off your small business mark, you're, with you not trusting the word of God, and especially without having the sacrament at the very center of your worship, you're going to get blown off course. And I'm saying it too late because it's already happening. And so what do you need to do now, Christians? Listen for your friends who have no church. That's what. Listen for your friends who don't know he's risen anymore. That's what. Listen for your friends who have been so pulled and torn by all the other teachings in the name of Jesus that their consciences are filled with shame instead of hope. That's what. And then tell them that he has risen and that you're paid for, that you're immortal now. And that he's coming back soon. Yes, that's the hope. But then we must understand the point of this in Isaiah 28 again, leading up to the cornerstone of the salvation moment, is to see that in the present, whatever we face, whatever challenges we have, we will always be tempted to put our trust in our responses to that challenge. And when that happens on a global level with people who are not Christians, or even not religious, with people who are liars, whose consciences are seared, who only care about their own belly. As the, the Bible talks about everyone being like this, by the way, then we must expect that they're going to do all sorts of stuff up above us that's going to hit us on the bottom and it's going to hurt. 
And we are at the bottom to remember that none of that stuff is what really matters. That God's got the mammon fully in control. And what he wants is to keep you saying he has risen. He has risen. He has risen. Verse 16 then of 28 is not the epicenter of the book of woes. But it is probably the most important thing after the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. It says this. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, that's the New King's James. In your ESV, it probably says, will not, uh, uh, will have no shame, or whoever believes will not be put to shame. Those words are connected to each other historically. You don't usually think about somebody with haste or moving quickly as doing so because they're ashamed. But it is usually to avoid shame. The reason you would ever hurry at all is a fear of shame, usually a mistake that leads to something bad, and so you feel bad. So there, there is a connection. And again, the Bible's not saying never be hasty, right? It's saying that the cornerstone that God's going to put into the middle of the near destruction of Jerusalem by Assyria is, in fact, something that will bring shamelessness to the entire world. And nobody will have to rush off anywhere to try to make it happen because God's going to bring it to pass. And you know how this goes out in the, in the New Testament as they, quote these these quite, excuse me, as they quote these verses about the stone, the stone the builders rejected that becomes the cornerstone and how marvelous this is in our eyes, all those things. So that stone is what God says will get them through the destruction of Jerusalem, just as, or I shouldn't say it, the destruction of Judea with Jerusalem standing. What is that stone? It's the line of David in Hezekiah. It's the promise that Christ will come from him. And do you remember that story then? That when that moment comes and the Rabshakeh is outside the gates of Jerusalem on behalf of Assyria saying, in Hebrew, throw down your arms. Hezekiah doesn't know what he's doing and your God can't save you. Your God sent us here. Hezekiah goes into the temple. Do you remember this? And he repents. He prays. You might also remember how up in a, I don't know, a wall of the city. There's a couple of people, a prophet and his friend. And his friend's all freaked out because outside he sees like the host of Assyria. And this is, this is a thousand year reign. I mean, these guys made Rome look kind of chintzy if you put them on a, on a compared to each other's scale in the history of, of, of the world. Uh, you didn't want these guys outside your gates. When they conquered you, they put like hooks in your nose and made you walk naked behind them all the way back. That kind of stuff, right? So the servant's rightly a bit afraid. Look at that army. And the prophet says, Look again. Remember this? He looks out. What does he see? There's two armies. One's made of fire. <laughs> well, Hezekiah prays. They see that army. That night, <laughs> that army, the angels of the Lord. It's hard to even find pictures of this. Not much art of this. It's really cool, though. They come down by themselves. No human engagement on the part of Jerusalem. Just the Lord's army of angels. And they just destroy the Assyrian hosts. Wipe them out entirely. They're gone. A couple of them get away, the Rabshakeh. They get back to Sennacherib, the emperor. I mean, this guy is king of the world. And this stroke is so much of a blow to his extended risk game board, however you want to imagine him trying to take over the south of his world, that it all collapses back. He can't even finish what he's doing in Egypt. He goes home, ends up just a couple of weeks later in the temple of his god where his sons kill him from behind. Within a couple of years, the entire empire is gone. Assyria, 
Nineveh, that great city, took days to watch across, walk across it, empty. Now, not everyone agrees it was God who did it. It happened there when God did it. He said, I will do this with this stone, Hezekiah's prayer, which is the knowledge that that temple is really the true God's. And anyone who asks that true God for something, he will hear and respond with truth. And what he has sent then is his son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh as that temple to speak the truth so that we might have it always with us. Yeah. Skipping ahead then, 20 and 21, that section there, um, we're going to go over that and not dig into that today. But let's look at 23 through 29 briefly. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does not the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and the scattered cumin? Plant the wheat in the rows? Doesn't it just sound like it doesn't make any sense at all at a certain point? What's it talking about? That whole paragraph is a fancy way of saying, you know you can't do the same thing all the time and have it work. If you only ever plant corn on one spot all the time, every season, eventually it's not going to be very good dirt. And everyone's known this for a very long time, he says. Now, why does he say that? Skip down to the bottom of the section. Verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Well, if it is built into nature, that it is a bad thing to hurt your soil by overusing it, over pruning it, overgrowing on it. Well, God made that and he knows what he's doing. And so the link of this is the result of this attack of Judea, the destruction of the land around Jerusalem, that it will pass. And that God does it only to grow more from the soil, to bring back something even better than was there before. So chapter 29, he starts to shout at this aerial person. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David uh, dwelt. Ariel is the Hebrew word for hearth, like your, your fireplace. And he's got a pun. I won't even read it to you, but he plays a pun here. He calls Jerusalem the hearth, the home, the safe place. Ariel, Ariel, you are Ariel. But then he's, he, he twists it. So by the end, he says, you're going to be inside of my Ariel, <laughs> my hearth, where the fire is. I'm going to put you through it right now. And you're going to be ready for that to come. And he, he describes in this section, I mean, five, six, and seven. It's so terrifying. Again, you're in Jerusalem, and this is outside the windows of your house. The multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust. The multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yet it shall be. Ooh. In an instant, suddenly, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress. So again, you have this great inversion where God sends a huge destruction and yet through it, he's going to pull the saved. And he's telling you as the saved, you're going to be in the city. You're going to be in the land when all the plagues and all the wars go through. But they're not going to take away your faith. And I'm going to drag you through the suffering into eternity. Not afraid of it. But to the point where you walk into the suffering and say, it can't touch me. Because I'm alive in him now. That's what he wants us to get. That no matter how bad it looks, no matter how awful the kingdoms of the world become, 
it always is the Christian's place to stand up with confidence and say, he has risen. I can't die. Shoot me. Let's see how it goes on the last day. And I guarantee you, that is a more blessed way to look at your day, to find the suffering, to make decisions for the good of others that don't put them at risk and care about the least of these in our midst, which we must do. But to do it with honesty and, well, a belief that there is such a thing as truth. For the sake of time here, jumping ahead just a touch again, he wants us to be astounded that in spite of everything we have done to deserve extermination as a species, everything he does to us that seems like it would exterminate us is only trying to push us back into the grain that will lead us to salvation. And so how much trust do you put in America? I put less in now than I did pre-COVID, even though I'm more committed to my republic tis of thee than I was before COVID too. Because to the equivalent level that I am confident in my Lord, I cannot die, I am that ready to stand beside my countrymen and help them in any way, shape, or form. So this does not diminish how we would live our lives now. It explodes it. It pulls it out of us. Again, because the fear is a lie. The fear is a lie. Now, again, I said I'd skip ahead. Verse 17 in verse 29. Hold on. I think I have to do verse 13 first. Let me double check that. No. Well, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. We're going to skip ahead to verse 17, which is our text now proper, right? So we've, we've led ourselves into this text proper. And here's where it says this really weird line. You had to be like, you, you sit down for church, you do all the stuff you're used to doing. And then the first thing I say new to you is out of the Old Testament reading and it's this line. I mean, it's so weird. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? Like, yeah, and the Cubs will win the World Series too, maybe, you know, I don't know. Right? It's like, what do you do with that? What does it mean? You don't know what Lebanon is, perhaps. And I, I didn't either until I went and looked. Lebanon's a country, but it's more than just a country. It's a country known for having absolutely no fruitful fields. It's like all forests, whole thing. And so he says now, after all this destruction being pushed down on Jerusalem, and we can feel it here as the church in this age, all of this pressure and tempering put upon the Christians and the Christian churches in America today, shoving us down, he asked this question. Now, to us and to them, isn't it a little while until everything gets flipped on its head? Until the forest is a field and the field is a forest? Until the one who is deaf hears and the one who is blind sees? And uh-oh. Mark chapter 7, right? That was our gospel reading. That's why that's there. This is really what then it's all leading to, that this guy Jesus shows up one day, speaking of strange things, finds a guy who's deaf, and they want him to heal him. He's up, by the way, among the pagans at this point, but coming back into the Samaria region, which means that Isaiah 29 condemnation of Ephraim, he's talking to the same people right now as he goes and they bring him this deaf man who also can't talk. There's something wrong with his tongue. But isn't it the weirdest thing? He puts his finger in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And I've imagined that like every way possible. Like you put your, you, you spit on your fingers first, and then, you know, wet willy in the ears and the tongue. You just do the ears with the fingers first, and spit and touch the tongue. You spit and touch the tongue. I mean, it's not really very clear. It's all weird. <laughs> like no matter what way you do, it's like, Jesus, why are you doing this? Well, I honestly don't have an answer for you. The best Lutheran answer we usually come up with is that Jesus is sacramental. He's material. He does physical things because he's a physical man. Okay, that's fine. 
But I think more, more stunning than the weird of it is what he then does after he does all this hocus pocus on the guy. He stands back and unlike the prophets of old who would turn and say, oh Lord, please hear us in your glorious name. We know you will heal the boy or that kind of thing. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, open and it happens. The authority of Jesus there to take what seems like reality and whack, flip it on its head in an instant. Now, I know a lot of Christians spend a lot of time praying he'll do that while you're in the hospital in the, what, later golden years of your life, hoping you'll have a few more of those years. Okay, it's not bad to ask your father for good things. Pray for healing. But if all you've got in your prayers is prayers for healing in this life, let me suggest to you that you are to be pitied above all people. Really. Your prayers are so much more powerful than a few more meager moments on this veil of tears. Your prayers are capable of moving the real mountains, the, the broken hearts of your neighbors and friends who do not believe in Jesus, who do not know of Jesus, who need you to stop thinking about yourself and just be glad you have Jesus in your life and live like this so they can hear about Jesus. We're going to keep working on that here at St. Paul. I didn't do the identity check yet. Why are you here at 4881 Kilburn, you're really asking yourself that now, 33 minutes into the service, or the sermon. Hopefully you have with you, I want to show you some stuff. You have your own personal Bible? Did you bring one? I hope you're going to get one. And you brought it, and you brought something to write with. I also am so excited, my new pocket hymnal came. Would you believe it? It was almost the whole hymnal. You can get it from Concordia Publishing House. It doesn't have the music in it. So it's like a book of poetry. It's really cool. It's got the entire Psalter in it. It's got the small catechism. I can take it with me everywhere I go. Uh, it doesn't have the liturgy, so if you bring it to church, you'll have to memorize the liturgy. But who are we? We're people who know these two things. We're people who want to be a part of these two things, who have these words not just sitting here somewhere, but coming out of our mouth. Why? Well, because we believe in the Holy Spirit, that's why. We'll come back to that in one more moment. The story about Jesus, uh, if you didn't catch it, you see the so-called Mark in secret in verse 36. It's kind of a goofy little thing about Mark 2. Jesus keeps telling people not to talk about him. He heals them. He says, shut up. And he does this thing. Don't tell anybody. And then everybody tells everybody, anybody, anyway. And throughout the history of interpretation, understanding, there's a couple of answers that have been brought to why this is. I've never found any of them particularly satisfying. Uh, the best one is, is that... Um, I'm sorry, the worst one, I think, is that it's reverse psychology. He's just trying to get them to say it. It's like, Jesus doesn't play games like that. So I, I don't buy that one. What I think it is, is more the big picture of Mark's gospel, which is that Jesus is there, and it's really obvious who he is, and it's really obvious what he's doing, but nobody gets it. They all are coming and flocking to him for miracles, but nobody knows he's God. Even though he's talking about being God and doing things only God can do, the only ones early on that call Jesus God in Mark's gospel are the demons. The demons, those wicked spirits that are still out there in the world today and apparently can make people talk sometimes. They scream out, you are the son of God to Jesus. And then no human gets it. The apostles don't get it. Disciples, followers, none of, nobody gets it. No human calls Jesus God but one. And he at the foot of the cross, a pagan centurion who said, surely this man was the son of God. Why is it that only a pagan Roman soldier knows Jesus is God? Because the secret of Mark's gospel is one that you're supposed to figure out. That's why he's trying to poke at you, Mark, to get you to ask, why am I not talking about this? 
If they're all talking about it, why am I not? I'll tell you why. It's fear, and we'll deal with that. You don't need to be afraid. Romans 10, then. This is how we got sent on this wild goose chase this week anyway, because it quotes Isaiah chapter 28, book of woes that we just went through, in verse 12. Verse 12 says, there is no distinction. Excuse me, I skipped it. It's verse 11. It says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So if you still have your Isaiah marked, you can flip back to Isaiah 28, 16. We stopped when we were there before. We'll look at it one more time. You're all right, Hugh. You'll make it. It says, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily or not be put to shame, right? So that's the one here that, that Paul quotes in verse 11 in order to prove the point before, which is that, verse 10, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And this also is connected to verse 9, that if somebody confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, well, this is the definition of salvation. This is, this is what you should take home dancing with today. But I want to give you one other piece on this. Because this same text is probably one of the most damning texts to the consciences of many American Christians today. Because this is the text they use to try to figure out whether or not they're really a Christian. Every time they're not sure they're a Christian, they have to go back to the moment when they say, well, I said out loud the sinner's prayer, and I believed in Jesus with all my heart, and so I have to be saved, I have to be saved, I have to be saved. Because it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. See, so I said it, and I believe it, therefore I'm saved, I have to be saved, I have to be saved. But the thing is, it never works on the conscience. Because it's not what this verse is for. This verse isn't an if-then clause to make you save yourself by saying magic words. This verse is the reality that Jesus is risen. And when you have your mouth say he is risen, that's proof to you that he's got his Holy Spirit inside of you already. So make a decision for Jesus. Go for it. Because you already have the living God alive in you making you talk. And I don't know how to impress this on you anymore. The word Holy Spirit, Holy Wind, Holy Breath. And you are a human nephesh, soul, spirit. We call it bodied spirit, but breather is the real word in the Hebrew. And when God made man, he breathed on him and he became a nephesh, a living spirit. So that, who are we? We are breathers, right? By definition, when do you die? When you stop breathing. And then Jesus rises from the dead, new breath in that dead body. And he comes to his apostles and he goes, receive the Holy Spirit. And you're like, that's weird, Jesus, like your finger thing. Yeah? But then the thing is, what happens next to those men? They begin to talk about his resurrection without fear. That's what. Who's doing that? Them? Well, they're there. They're not saying no. But what spirit possessed them? And I really mean it when I say it that way. I, have a, I recently was asked by somebody who was afraid. If a Christian can be possessed by a demon. Now, a Christian who stops being a Christian can have all sorts of stuff happen. But the definition of a Christian is that you have the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity living inside of you. Now, it's not, he's not in your liver. He's not in your hair. He's in the word of God about Jesus. So if you want him there, those words need to be there more. And you can always get more Holy Spirit that way. But the fact is that he is there. You are possessed by the Holy Spirit already. What fear are you of demons? 
You think they can inhabit you while he's there? But again, even this, how would you know any of this? Unless somebody told you, right? Isn't that what Romans 10 says? How are they to call in Jesus if they don't believe in him? And how are they going to believe in him if nobody has ever heard of him? And how are they going to hear about him if nobody ever? Now it says in the English preaching, but please don't let it just stop there. Yeah, preachers better preach. And the predicament, the office of the ministry, it's a thing God made and we need it. But frankly, you can't wait around for the pastors to save everybody by talking to everybody. We just don't have time. And I'm not looking to harp on you. You know who I want you to talk to most about Jesus first? Yourself. Yourself. I want you to look in the mirror and tell yourself you're a Christian. Confess the creed. You'll feel ashamed, I promise you. And you don't need to. It's a lie. Don't let it. Believe the words. Pray the Lord's Prayer. I want you to take these things. I want you to write them down to yourself so you can have confidence. So the last thing we need is for you to be going, telling your friends that they got to come to church because you're scared the church is going to fall apart or because you're afraid if you don't do it, God won't love you. What a crappy religion. We're immortal. Jesus did it. You're in. The water sealed it. The food feeds it. The text teaches it again and again and again. All we need is for that preacher to stop yammering and let you eat God's peace.